Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Music Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Andre Sirwa, author of Hip Hop DJs and the Evolution of Technology, Cultural Exchange, Innovation, and Democratization. Our conversation explores the history of DJs in hip hop and their role in shaping the sound and technology that allowed hip hop to flourish. We also discuss how DJs get credited, compensated, and gain a legacy for their technological and musical innovations. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Um, well, let's start by exploring how this book came about. How did you decide to write a book about DJs as technological innovators? Yeah, well, um, that's a very interesting question. I actually didn't decide that necessarily. It kind of came to me uh, through the research. So, you know, when you do, so when some people do ethnography, broadly defined, um, they kind of you know, see what comes out of the questions they ask and the people they interact with. And so for me, um, you know, coming into this project, which was, you know, my dissertation, I initially had pitched as really being interested in how like digital DJ vinyl technology was kind of changing the culture and music business and how DJs were sort of negotiating it. And that ultimately became part of this book. And so uh, bearing that in mind, uh, you know, that's kind of where I was going with it. So I um, my first interview for this project, I connected with um, Mike May, who at the time was at this company called Rain. And I write about them in the book. And Rain Rain is a company that's local to me in that they are um, in outside of Seattle. So about six hour drive for me. And. I wanted to connect with him because Rain manufactured um, the, the hardware for the industry standard digital vinyl system, which is Serato Scratch Live at the time. So literally my first interview for this project, I got on my motorcycle, I took a six-hour trip up, up to Seattle, and I go to Rain headquarters. Um, and I met with Mike. I spent the whole day there. I toured the facility. It was super cool. And... You know, I sat down and started uh, interviewing him. You know, we started talking and talking kind of about how all the relationship happened with between Rain and Serato and a little bit about the company's history. And he told me, uh, you know, we kind of got talking. He told me the story about this mixer called the Rain uh, 52 uh, or the Rain 54, excuse me, and uh, which was like their first mixer aimed at, you know, hip hop DJs. It was a you know, a battle style mixer or whatever. And he told me the whole story about like how like Rain, who had been making mixers and audio equipment for a while, were approached at a trade show by four like hip hop DJs and how they said, you know, your products are great. You make great products, but they don't work for this growing market, which is scratching and turntablism and hip hop DJs, you know, and they had some ideas and they brought some ideas to them. And ultimately became, you know, uh, the Rain 54 mixer. And I was like sitting there and listening to him. And I'd heard like heard these stories through the grapevine. And I knew like DJs had been involved and 
you know, have been credited in some ways as inventors or innovators or designers. But, um, you know, it was just so cool to hear that story and to hear like this company, you know, the guy at a company, national sales manager or whatever, tell me about it. And then we go out to the lobby and there's like a little mini plaque dedicated to those 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 four DJs and what what they did. But I was just like, my mind was kind of blown. And I was like, wow, I'm like, you know, driving home on my motorcycle, just thinking the whole time about the project. And I, and basically it kind of went from there. And I just started talking to more and more people and, uh, you know, kind of asking those types of questions um, along with the whole digital, you know, digitization part. So it kind of really came from, uh, from the research itself um, right from, from the jump and it kind of came to me and I, you know, was really thankful, um, that I was, you know, that I was given that story, but also given, I don't know, the creative ability to kind of deviate from my initial concept and do something that I think was a little bit more meaningful than just like, let's look at, you know, um, the negotiation of digital technology. So, um, that sort of led me down like a pretty, pretty long, path um you know over the next six seven years uh with all this project so you are a dj and how do you think being a dj shaped the kinds of questions you asked shaped uh, how other djs responded to you and maybe even responded how the um the industry responded to you yeah i mean being a dj so i mean to kind of put this in context like i um, you know, have been a hip hop head since I was a little kid, caught the breakdance bug in the eighties and, you know, been DJing since the, the late nineties. So I really was kind of into DJing and, and the music side far, far before I had any interest in academia. And so it took me actually a while, um, as I moved through grad school, you know, I wrote a thesis on sampling and music and the legality of it. And I got into a PhD program. And it kind of took me, you know, through my first year to actually think that DJing, specifically hip hop DJing and scratching in any sort of way would be of any academic value. Um, so it, it took, you know, some really cool professors that I had, a folklorist and some people in the subcultural studies and like, you know, media, new media at the time or, uh, you know, theory to kind of like open my, open my mind to that. But um, with that said, once I kind of got there and I started asking questions and, you know, a lot of a lot of how I framed my questions and what I asked. I mean, this is stuff that I would talk about on the regular with with my homies, with the DJs, you know, like it was just like these were like things we talked about, like just like, yo, like initially, like what's this like corny ass digital shit like what is like what are these cdjs like what you know just like what is digital vinyl final scratch this is some bullshit you know and just like you know like you know talking about authenticity you know and non sort of academic terms so i mean these these were all all these conversations that i had with djs in this project were stems from really conversations that i just had in everyday sort of life so i mean i really kind of like it was just really weird. I was kind of like a participant observer, but more of a participant because I was always observing, you know, and so, you know, but I mean, totally, I mean, you, when you look at, when I look back at my questions and I look back at everything, I mean, it's very clear that, you know, I'm, I was a DJ. I mean, you look at the book, it's very, I don't know if you'd say like sympathetic 
towards DJs, but I'm really trying to shine light on on the DJs in a, in a, in a different way. So just how how I ask the questions, the ways that I ask ask the questions, who I asked, um, a lot of that you know, was based on my history and knowledge that had nothing to do with academics. And so, you know, that's the blessing and the curse, I think, of this of this project. You know, uh, when you have, you know, people doing ethnographies and people writing about cultures and subcultures, you know, there's a certain strand of thought in academia that really privileges, you know, objectivity or, or, or you know, um, you know, kind of like an outsider perspective, but, um, you know, and being able to sort of navigate that without not having a lot of investment in the, the culture topic. Um, but then there's other people who think there's great value to having that, like a lot of the communication I had and people I connected with were people I just had relationships with before I was pursuing this, uh, an academic sort of fashion. So, I mean, when you talk about snowball sampling, I mean, it was really like, you know, I think having that DJ edge and being able to approach people and be like, yo, what's up? My name is Andre, DJ Food Stamp. You know, I'm, I'm interested in this. I'm writing, you know, dissertation on this. Would you, would you want to talk about it? I mean, just, you know, I think for a lot of people, when they get like an, an, an interview request and it's very formal and sort of uh, academic and, you know, whatever, uh, I think maybe there's a little resistance to that. So I think it definitely helped get me um, in the in the door with, with the DJs. I think on the in- industry side, I think too, like, you know, like, um, I mean, for me, I, I had to talk to people in the industry because I, I wanted to give kind of a little bit of light to both sides and give their perspective I think that's like the journalist background in me and that, that, that whole, whole thing. But, um, you know, I, I think like definitely the questions I asked people in manufacturing and the industry side were, you know, I mean, those were totally, um, you know, tinted by my sort of, uh, background as a DJ and just, you know, I've always kind of felt like for a long time, the DJs kind of been like specifically in hip hop, you know, most hip hop DJs, have kind of a chip on their shoulder in the sense of like, you know, hip hop culture kind of stemmed from DJing. And then once it became rap, you know, the hip hop DJ got kind of brushed aside and then they like, you know, made their own sort of thing out of it. And so I think, you know, uh, with that in mind too, like a lot of people wanted to talk, like they wanted to tell their stories and give their perspectives and, you know, have all these people who contributed to technologies who never really got any props for it who really wanted to kind of um, talk about that stuff and find a place where they could get some props for a contribution they made that wasn't like, Oh, I, you know, popularized this scratch technique or, or whatever. Um, you know, how could we shine light on DJs in a different way? So that's really kind of at the end of the day for me, what it was about was just kind of giving some shine um, to DJs in a different way and kind of framing them in a different way. And, it's clearly biased <laughs> in, a, in a lot of ways, you know, and, and, and some people may think that's great. And some may, people, you know, may destroy my, my writing and perspective for that, you know, and find it problematic. Well, that's why I was so excited about your book, because I, I just think the DJs are just such an underexplored element of hip hop. And so when I saw your title, I was like, 
finally, you know, some more work, uh, real work on DJ. So I was thrilled about that. And so maybe can we segue a little bit about like the role of the DJ, especially in the history of hip hop. You kind of mentioned it a little bit a few minutes yeah. ago, but like, you know, what was the role of the DJ sort of in the early days? And um, what are some of the misconceptions people have about the role of the DJ? Mm. I mean, there's this sort of, you know, narrative and, and you have to understand, you know, I think, you know, uh, you know, we're talking about the early seventies. We're talking about, um, you know, groups of, you know, um, young, you know, African-American and, you know, Puerto Rican, um, you know, teenagers, I mean, kids essentially. Right. Um, and, in a, in the South Bronx and the sort of, you know, forgotten about or, 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 or you know, uh, forgotten about intentionally um, by a lot of institutions, you know, and, and, you know, um, and there was no documentation, right? Like, you know, it's, it's the early 70s. So it's not like now where, you know, something comes out and it's like, it spreads like wildfire, you know, I mean, it's, you know, um, you know, there's even like, you know, webpage you can go and f- find like, know your meme, right? You can find like the source of your meme or whatever, you know? So there's always a way to kind of like document history now, like so much where people are documenting the fact that they ate a burrito. Well, you know, none of this obviously existed in the seventies with this community. And so, you know, the history of the DJ, you know, in the seventies is kind of, it's kind of come down to this sort of grand narrative and that, you know, the pioneers of hip hop, um, have kind of, and, and, and the people who are disciples to that have kind of collectively told and retold and it's been told and, you know, Hollywood films and Netflix films and all this stuff. Um, and that's kind of, you know, the story is, you know, it sort of centers on, you know, one specific DJ, which is DJ Cool Herc, who's given credit. And I think the important thing to note is like, you know, um, in hip hop culture and, and, and DJ culture too, specifically, you know, it's kind of about like what people um, agree on who did what and if it's published and if it's uh, fixed in a medium of some sort. Right. And, and, and so, um, you know, basically the narrative really focuses on, you know, young Clive Campbell, DJ cool Herc, who, who basically started giving parties uh, in the early seventies um, at, you know, the rec center at his, um, you know, apartment complex. And, you know, Herc was, you know, given credit for like, you know, you know, you know, finding like really um, records that weren't being played on the air, um, you know, that weren't popular. They weren't like, you know, disco type hits or, you know, hit music. And he's finding like these really raw and edgy, you know, James Brown records and, you know, an incredible bongo band. And, you know, he's finding these records that were, you know, uh, had songs and the songs were very percussive and they would, you know, have a percussive breakdown, you know, drum break, but mainly, you know, really percussive sort of breakdowns, not like a raw drum break, like a a sample DJ would use or producer would use, but I'm talking like, you know, with some uh, conga sounds or bongos or whatever, you know, and he, he found like, you know, when that part of the song would hit that his dancers, the people at his party, you know, they kind of go bonkers and uh, they'd lose their minds. So he figured out he he's like, shit, he's like, 
why play the whack part? You know, the part where people are just kind of dancing around. I'm going to just uh, play, you know, uh, the, the rhythmic percussive break sections. And so he would kind of just play those sections and you play them over and over again on the same record. And you go back and forth between different sections and, you know, kind of the B-boy dance and B-girl dance kind of developed from that and from him. And that's sort of like the real bare bones, like narrative story of, of, of hip hop DJing. And from, you know, eventually he brought on his, his homie, Kokla Rock, who would get on the microphone and, you know, you know, welcome people to the party, you know, shout out announcements because Herc was like so busy trying to like play breaks and go through his records and all that stuff. And, you know, Kokla uh, Rock became sort of known as the first uh, MC. Um, you know, and then you have, you know, then the other part of part of the trilogy of the of the grand narrative story focuses on Africa Bambata uh, and uh, Grandmaster Flash. Um, you know, and, and then the, the part about Bambata, people always talk about is, you know, he helped start the Zulu Nation and he was a former gang member and. You know, in his neighborhood of the South Bronx started, um, you know, uh, this organization and they were about positivity and, you know, you know, things like that. And uh, he was really known as like the master of records. So he's really digging for rare different types of stuff, not funk and soul, but rock and, you know, uh, kraut rock and, you know, all sorts of shit and breaking that to his crowd. And then you have Grandmaster Flash, who, you know, kind of. If you watch the get down on uh, Netflix, you know, you get this really kind of uh, crazy version of of Grandmaster Flash, um, you know, as this like, you know, sensei sort of character. But, um, you know, all that aside, you know, Flash basically, you know, he did a lot of things. And I think, you know, he's really um, for me, he's like a real central figure. Uh, in this book and I, God damn it, I wish I could get in touch with him and interview him. And I've had, you know, some back and forth with him and trying to make it happen. Um, because really he kind of, <clears throat> you know, out of everybody kind of set, set the tone for the DJs innovator, like naming, uh, really focusing on naming his techniques and, um, you know, and really presenting them with a name and, 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 and his, his main thing was his, you know, quick mix theory and what he did is you know he figured out you've seen the get down he uses a crayon but he figured out like how to take two copies of the same record with a with a drum break on them and he figured out how to use you know markings on the record to let the drum break play on turntable two and then the same drum break on turntable one when the break would end on turntable two he'd cross over to turntable one and on time he would drop you know, the break, the same break on turntable one, he'd backspin on turntable two to his marker. And then when the break would end on turntable one, he'd drop it back on turntable two, created basically an infinite loop on time. And, you know, he learned by watching, uh, you know, they all went to Cool Herc's parties and learned from watching Herc and, and, you know, Flash was like, oh man, he's playing these breaks, he's playing these old records, but he's sloppy as hell. You know, he's like not on time. And so Flash wanted to be really scientific about it. And, you know, according to all, all, all accounts and his biography and, you know, everything. Um, and so Flash was really the one to kind of figure out how to loop 
a drum break and, you know, with the, the Furious Five, his MCs, you know, um, you know, specifically Melly Mel, they really started to advance the MCing part because they had a solid loop created by Flash, you know. And then the other person in the narrative is uh, Grand Wizard Theodore, who, um, you know, another South Bronx DJ. He was real young. I mean, we're talking about like these these dudes are, you know, uh, 13, 14, 12, 15, 16, right? All they're doing really is just trying to do something to feel some value and to do something as kids, you know, and they're into it and they're into the fame and they're into like, you know, getting chicks and like, you know, making a little money or, or whatever, you know, not really thinking like this is going to be like a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, you know, they're not really thinking about, about it like that. And so like, that's again, why a lot of like this didn't get archived or, you know, um, you know, a lot of journalism on it until later. Um, but Grim Wizard Theodore is often given credit as, you know, uh, being a pioneer. Um, I don't like to say inventor, uh, per se, but you know, he was one of the innovators and popularized scratching. So he would kind of took what Flash did and Flash was like one of a, a mentor, of him and he figured out what flat you know took flash's rub where flash would like rub the record back and forth and 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 what theodore did is he figured out he could take like a horn stab or something and he could cut it over another record and he could do it rhythmically and do it musically etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's kind of like the grand narrative is like the djs were were like the sort of um you know king of like early hip-hop culture because like they had the records, they had the sound system, they had the ability to loop the records. So the MCs, the rap, AKA, you know, eventually becoming rappers relied on, like everybody relied on them. If the DJ didn't show up, the B-boys and B-girls couldn't dance, you know? So, I mean, like they were the central force, the star, right? And then in 1979 or whatever, when, um, you know, Rapper's Delight came out and, Sylvia Robinson famously went and found, uh, you know, some dudes who wanted to make a, a record that would replicate what was happening, had been happening in the South Bronx for, you know, four, five, six, seven years in the parks and figured, you know, we could isolate this and sell this on a, on a, on a record and people could listen to it at home. Um, you know, that really kind of changed everything. And that's like really the moment because rappers delight, what she did is, is Sylvia Robinson, who had experience in the music industry, um, you know, funk and soul. She had a bunch of hits. Anyways, she found three guys who would rap, who could kind of rap. Um, and this is a very you know famous story. And, uh, you know, she brought them into a studio and session, she had basically session musicians replicate what DJs were doing, which was taking a rhythmic part of a song or a funky part of a song and looping it, well, they would just basically play a loop of like, you know, a popular kind of like disco hit. So that was, uh, um, you know, um, Good Times by Chic, which would come out a few months earlier. And once that happened and Rapper's Delight came out, you know, you had all and started making all this money and whatever you had all these dj crews and mc crews who were like holy shit like there's a lot of money to be made off of this we didn't think anybody would buy it and so they all started making records and all started get, you know started getting jerked i mean 
fucked over, totally screwed um, by these record labels, often like independent black owned record labels, but by people who had some industry savvy would kind of get over on these kids. Um, And when that started happening, you know, once rap records started coming out as disco rap, um, the format was the same, right? You didn't need a DJ to cut up the instrumental backing. All, it was all done by session musicians. Um, and session musicians were trying to replicate what DJs were doing. And that's what they did. And it displaced the DJ. You don't need a DJ if you, if you have session musicians. And eventually the session musicians got uh, replaced by digital sampling technology. And the DJ kind of, what was their role? They went from being like, the king of, of their neighborhood and like a God, you know, and being super important to, you know, nothing. You know, literally almost overnight, like Grandmaster Flash went from being like the most, one of the most important and popular DJs for the most important and popular uh, crew at the time to like, he was so frustrated because they'd go into the studio and did all these records on Sugar Hill records with called Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. And he did nothing on those records. He did not one thing. He didn't do a scratch. He didn't do anything. So we go into the studios and he was pissed. So eventually uh, they let him put out Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel, which he basically, to me, I call it the first hip hop record um, because it was a DJ cutting up other records which is to me is like the 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 foundation of hip-hop is a dj manipulating you know records and so um that was like to me like the first hip-hop record everything everything else was rap records right it was just just ultimately different because there's no dj involved and so and so from that you know uh you know i think djs kind of went back underground in a way and they started doing their own thing and coming up with you know, thing, you know, they obviously toured and backed rappers and, and did all that stuff, but they started creating their own thing and, you know, engaging in like the new music seminar battles and the um, DMC battles and really kind of like just advancing technique on their own in their bedrooms and their studios because, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for them and they felt like they, you know, they sort of were you know, um, cast aside and so that's why I think in hip-hop DJ culture there is sort of uh, chip on a lot of their shoulders and um you know i don't think a lot of people really get 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 that you know um because now you have you know like djs were like even in like club cultures and and, and stuff uh in, in you know uh england and like you know europe and stuff you know djs were kind of like bottom feeders like specifically club and party djs they were kind of like they weren't paid a lot of money, you know, they weren't really, you know, valued in a lot of ways. And then what you have now is like people getting multi-million dollar contracts to play in Vegas, you know, and DJs making 30, 40 million dollars a year. Um, you know, so a lot of people see it as a very glamorous thing and like they don't they don't really understand like the sweat <laughs> and work and and sort of like the bullshit to get to that point. And, and, and frankly, you know, a lot of the people who, who paved that, paved that road are not getting compensated are not living a good life. I mean, just a few years ago, cool DJ, cool Herc, you know, the dude credited for, you know, basically 
you know, more or less inventing hip hop, you know, in the sense of isolating the drum break, like being like, yo, this is the break, you know, and, and bringing out the dance and like bringing in the MC and all that stuff. The dude, I think he had to have some, like, he had some gallbladder or gallstone shit. I mean, he was working at, at FedEx and his, they had to do like a GoFundMe type thing that his sister did ironically. Cause this, you know, he did, he, his first, party that he gave or jam that he gave was to raise money so she could buy new school clothes you know what i'm saying ironically like 30 40 years later she's doing like an online funding thing so like he can get medical attention you know what i'm saying and then you have and then you have all these cats who 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 are you know they're they they've come from that him as the sort of you know the seed and they're making you know millions and millions of dollars um you know, not in just DJing, but rapping and just off, off of kind of like his seed, you know, and here's this guy, you know, who gets a lot of credit, a lot of credit and a lot of props, you know, from the culture, from the people that have any investment in the culture, but your average, you know, 20 year old who likes rap music and trap music and stuff, they don't know who Cool Herc is, um, you know, and it, you know, and that, and whatever, but I mean, like, you know, he, there's no royalties for him. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, it's like, it's so I think a lot of people don't kind of like take that into consideration in, in, in a lot of ways when they're enjoying sort of the long genesis of his, of his uh, fruits or labor, I guess. Um, the themes that you talk about in your book, and I think this is kind of the right place to maybe get at it, is how there's a lot of collaboration among hip hop DJs and how that doesn't quite fit with how credit and ownership kind of works in the industry. So can you maybe talk a little bit about what you found about yeah. the culture? Yeah. I mean, so, uh, yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it, you know, you have to look back and, and you can, you know, I kind of romanticize it in a lot of ways and, and that's based upon my, my observations, um, you know, and I say, you know, and I think like, you know, DJing is very open source. Uh, it really exemplifies to me open source. I mean, if you think about a DJ in the 70s throwing a jam at a park, you know, and showing off their skills, that's like the internet of 1974 to, to, to me, you know. But there were like always proprietary things going on. Like uh, all like the early DJs would put they would, you know, um, obscure the labels of their records because their monopoly in their neighborhood was based on the fact that they knew the ill breaks and the ill records, you know? And so there were sort of proprietary, you know, things like that. But in general, you know, people, DJs specifically have always kind of like shown one another things. Like they've shown one another techniques and like they've, they've shared pretty openly um, techniques and, and, and people, and, and whether it's directly like they're like, yo, check, check this out, which, you know, it's how I learned is from people who are better than me, like showing me how to do certain, certain things. And I've done the same thing, you know, that's, it, it, it's a pretty open source in, in that capacity. And then sort of indirect things where like DJs would, um, partake in a DJ battle in the eighties and that would get distributed on VHS tape or in the nineties. And then like people would buy those and they would see 
what they were doing. And so like the ideas were kind of sharing and going viral in a very eighties and early nineties sort of way. Um, you know, and so I, I think that in general, like how technique DJ technique develops is this sort of very open, open source sort of way, the sort of network, right. Um, very collaborative, even, uh, if it's indirectly, but it can be super direct. And within that, network, you know, you know, you have the, you know, you have to look at, you know, open source and and stuff like that. It's as much as it is like a practice or creative commons is a, you know, a licensing system. It's also an ideology. Um, just like, you know, the idea of like singular authorship, um, and all rights reserved copyright and stuff is also an ideology. And that's the mainstream ideology that we live in. So, I mean, I think a lot that is part of the reason why a lot of DJs emphasize credit and credit for their innovations and, you know, um, sort of more proprietary, you know, behaviors. But I don't I think that also relates to like legacies and brands and like things like that. Right. Like if you. Um, if you pioneered and popularized a style, you want to get credit for it because it, it's your legacy, it's your ego um, or whatever. But I, I think, you know, collaboration showing, I mean, you know, you can Google any scratch technique and people share how to do it. DJs were putting out how-to videos in like the late 90s with like tech manufacturers. Um, granted, you know, that's that's a for-profit thing, but they were putting out their techniques. They were like showing people how to do things. So um, I think, you know, that's always been a major part um, of, of the culture and how the culture advances. I mean, if people could just patent or own a DJ technique, I mean, there's, it'd be really hard to innovate. I mean, you know, if you took like what happens in the software industry, right, where you patent an idea and then like, anybody wants to do something and they pretty much design a software knowing they're going to get sued. I mean, imagine if DJ technique could be like the same sort of way, you know, you would never advance. So, um, I do think that, you know, there is an element of proprietariness when it comes to legacies and credit for innovation. But I also think like what supersedes that, I mean, I think credit is very important, but I think actually advancement of the culture um, and the technique is like paramount to like anything. I think that kind of from my research and what I found from people and people who collaborated with technology companies where it's like, yeah, uh, you know, it'd be dope, really dope to get money. It'd be it'd be cool to get some credit. But like, honestly, like we wanted to advance the, the technique and the culture. And so we'll share our ideas for products to advance the culture. And I thought I find something that I think that's super like open source mentality and collaborative uh, mentality. Um, and I think it's sort of, you know, at the heart of, of the culture itself. I don't think people, a lot of DJs think about it like that or recognize it like that um, because it's also very competitive um, for money, for props, you know, all that, all that stuff. But I do think it's, it's one of the main driving forces that often goes unrecognized in, in DJ culture. And I think there's a ton of people who are advancing DJ technique for the sole purpose 
of just like being able to do it and to like be dope and like showcase like styles and get props for their styles and to also like have other people take, you know, kind of their ideas and their innovations and do something new with it. And that's the whole thing, you know, in, in hip hop, it's like, don't bite, you know, don't copy, but if you're going to copy, you know, copy to advance, like copy to do something better with it. And that's totally like, dope you know like to figure out like oh like i'm gonna take this skill set or these technique these combinations of techniques i'm gonna flip it in my own way with my own style and like do something new with it is not a frowned upon activity but like just copying somebody is you know totally frowned upon so i think again people people share and, and 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 copy and imitate but advance through that imitation um is a major part of, of, of how things move forward and how styles move forward. One of the interesting things that you describe a few times in the book is when you had some innovative DJs had kind of an innovative technique and it would sort of, they would either bring it to a technology company or the technology company would learn about it and then they would kind of build a device that did what they were looking for. And then, it, and then the so the DJs went from being kind of like innovators to then consumers can you maybe talk yeah. about the hamster or maybe another uh, example of how that how that worked out yeah so i mean this is kind of the crazy thing is like you know if you look at what was going on in new york city in the 70s is you have djs that were doing like crazy technological things because you know while dj mixers existed um, in like some high-end clubs or whatever, you know, the, the average dude, um, you know, in those urban areas didn't have access to a custom built, uh, sound system or mixer. So they were doing crazy things like taking two receivers for a stereo and one stereo receiver would control one turntable and the other would control the other turntable and they would just crossfade the volume levels or they would like, figured out ways to like basically take uh, two turntables and plug one into the left channel and one into the right channel. And the, and how they crossfade between signals is they would use the pan control on like a stereo receiver to go from turntable one to turntable two. So they're doing all this crazy stuff in like the parks. Right. And there's a real interesting uh, documentary that came out. Um, that I mentioned in the conclusion or epilogue of the book it's called Founding Fathers, and it sort of contests the uh, the grand narrative I, I talked about earlier with uh, Cool Herc and in the South Bronx, and it's all these sort of like disco style DJs who are doing like the same thing, but a couple years earlier in parks, but less of like the breakbeat stuff and the b-boy stuff and the MC and stuff. And there's a a, a part in the film um, where this DJ uh, DJ Vernon, who's part of this crew where he talks about this guy ricky grant who figured out how to y jack and he was doing all these crazy like you know um creating like engineering essentially sound systems but he figured out how to like y jack an old mixer so like he could actually mix between two signals and 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 vernon says you know and then some slick ass engineer from gli saw that and they came out with the gli 3800 which was like one of the first like um you know uh, uh mixers that was made to not be installed in a club and so 
that's kind of like the story of at least my my vision of you know inversion of of um what happens in the relationship between uh you know dj culture hip-hop dj culture specifically and manufacturing companies is 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 not necessarily like they steal the idea but um they sort of see what djs are doing and sharing and then they incorporate that into technology and so you know after after that you know nobody was really uh they were all making mixers in the 70s for like disco type djs and uh you know for like uh you know um you know mobile djs and like parks and stuff and so all these hip-hop djs we're using these, you know, we're talking about the uh, Clubman mixers or the GLI mixers or Gemini mixers. And all these companies were based around New York City or the tri-state area. So they, you know, they were literally, and these weren't DJ, they weren't run by DJs. They didn't have DJs who worked there. They were engineers, you know, that made hi-fi equipment or stereo equipment or broadcast equipment who basically took their existing technologies, microphone mixers and stuff, and they saw how DJs were doing things and they made their products to sort of accommodate them. Um, you know, and like the first DJ mixer that uh, ever was made was, uh, I believe, in 1971 for uh, DJ Francis Grasso. He's like a major disco DJ. And it was called Rosie and it was designed by Alex Rosner. And the whole mixer is like this little box. And it just had a headphone cue on it so he could hear like what he was doing in the headphones and it had some sliders so he could mix the signals. And that was designed based upon how Francis Grasso played records. So it was based – the design was based on his technique, right, and his innovations in technique because he was an innovator in real early DJ culture. So, I mean – after you move past that, we get into the eighties. Um, you know, you, you, you have all these mixers that are kind of, you know, being made and they're, you know, they're, they're not really accommodating like scratch DJs, hip hop DJs. They were aimed at like mobile DJs, club type DJs, all this stuff. And, uh, you know, eventually what started happening in the early nineties is, is sort of a, a twofold thing that I sort of look at how like the mixers and a lot of products advance, um, technologically advance or technical innovation is what I, is what I call it. It's referring to buttons and knobs and faders and stuff. Um, is that number one, manufacturers started asking and collaborating with DJs on design. And we're talking about DJs who'd win DJ battles in like the early nineties. Um, they would start collaborating with them on design and, or they would see what DJs would do with these designs, right? The techniques that would, you know, that, that would be allowed for through these new designs and how DJs would manipulate and sort of subvert and customize and modify Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, and, and and do these new techniques. They would then sort of encode those ideas into new mixers and then sell them back to the culture at large. You know, um, in a way. So in the, in this sort of cycle, you know, um, you have DJs who are well known, who are sharing ideas, who are very advanced in their skills, who are sharing ideas and collaborating in research and development with technology manufacturers 
Um, you know, and then you have broadly, like what do DJs, what do DJs do with these products once they're out there? Oh, they're doing these sort of things, this sort of way. I never thought of like a hamster, like people are actually plugging in, you know, their turntables backwards and scratching that way. And so after like people were doing that, um, you know, in the Bay area, um, you know, and I talk about the hamster, the hamster style and the hamster switch, people started putting a switch, um, on their mixers that would basically reverse, um, reverse which turntable would, would play when you had the crossfader on a, on a certain side. So they were accommodating the tech, the technique and all these things come out and, and, and then the culture does something new with them and then it gets encoded into the technology. So, I mean, but at the end of the day, you know, um, you know, the DJs are sharing ideas because they they want to advance the product because they have these hopes and dreams for technique, right? Like things they want to do, sounds they want to make, ways they want to make sound that that with all the modification in the world, they can't they can't make it happen. So they share these ideas, design ideas, and ideas with with companies who have the means, who have the you know, the engineering departments who have the access to manufacturing and distribution and DJs share those ideas because they want the ill products so they can make their hopes and dreams and that they have for sound and sound manipulation uh, come alive. And and that's again, that, that gets back to this sort of open sourcedness and non-proprietary, uh, you know, sort of drive in, in the culture. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> You know, that's a, you know, the people who are actually collaborating with manufacturers, that's a small, small, small portion of, <laughs> of the DJ culture, you know, and the rest of us are just buying that shit, you know, we're just buying it, you know, and, and, um, you know, the other way that they encode DJs, you know, uh, ideas into mixers is they, they make signature mixers. So like, one of the first collaborations ever between a DJ manufacturing company and a DJ is uh, DJ Tricks, who's sort of an unknown DJ to a lot of us in the UK who won a DJ battle in the late um, 90, uh, the late 80s, excuse me, and he approached Vestex, a Japanese manufacturing company, because he used their mixers and, and about like a little endorsement deal. And he's like, hey, I have this design for a mixer. And he drew it up and he put his signature on it and they put it out. And he was like, holy shit. Like, you know, and so with that, you know, then we're talking 91 or so, we have a really important moment where um, a DJ gives design ideas to a manufacturer and then they use his him as an intellectual property to brand it right a signature mixer with his name on it his his picture on the box to try to to sell it to authenticate the product in the market to place to you know uh dorks like me you know like just consumers you know and that's been that was a major thing and that became a major thing for Vestex, and it was a major innovation was listening to djs and then using superstar djs on the box or um, you know, out there basically as marketing faces for the product to authenticate it with uh, all the people who were who were buying it because, you know, it was one of the major ways of giving something that's just a bunch of buttons and sliders and knobs, um, you know, authenticating it to the marketplace, giving it more 
more value was ascribing someone who had credibility in the marketplace and the culture, uh, ascribing their name and their and their sort of brand value to something, making it making it authentic, um, and and pushing it to uh, consumers. So, how was someone like this DJ compensated being branded in this way and for giving his ideas? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, if we're talking about DJ tricks. Um, you know, I think for him, I mean, again, he was a, he was a teenager, you know, and he'd won a, a you know a small, you know, I won't, not small, but a champion DJ championship battle, and you know, uh, you know, he's a ki- you know kid, and so like he was like, wow, I'm surprised they they did it. To be honest, he was like, holy shit. And I interestingly, for a long time before Vestex went bankrupt a couple years ago, um, he was like one of the heads of Vestex Europe. I mean, he eventually became like, you know, uh, a corporate dude there, um, which is, you know, kind of interesting in itself. Um, But, you know, compensation is a very interesting part. Um, You know, you have a lot of people that I talk to who contributed ideas, who outright design mixers, um, who never got any credit at all. Um, You know, for instance, the, you know, the guys I talked about, where my whole like genesis with this started with rain, you know, these are kind of dudes that you may know if you're a DJ, but a lot of people don't DJ big whiz, Mars one, Peter Parker, sugar cuts, you know, who approached rain and were like, you should make this, you know, rain wasn't going to put them on the box or on the front of, you know, give them a signature mixer because no one really knew who they were. You know what I'm saying? So like they gave their ideas because they wanted to make, a dope product, but they also didn't get credit, you know, in any sort of uh, meaningful way other than a little plaque in the, um, <laughs> in the headquarters, you know? Um, but f- for the most part, to be honest, like um, I tell another story in the book um, about DJ shortcut and some of the uh, scratch pickles who also worked with Vestex, a Japanese company, and you know, shortcut in like 1993, he drew this design for uh, a mixer. It was a real simple mixer, and he drew it on a napkin at a trade show, and he showed it to this rep for a company called Newmark, and they kind of like laughed at him because they were making these big monstrosity 19-inch mixers for mobile DJs, and eventually, you know, a shortcut connected with the people at Vestex, and. Um, you know, he brought along DJ Qbert and, you know, all the ISP to uh, invisible scratch pickles. And they started throwing ideas around with this company, you know, a couple years after the tricks mixer and, you know, out of it, um, you know, in some R and D came the Vestex 05, which is sort of like the blueprint for all scratch, um, mixers and, you know, shortcut. I talked to him at length about this, you know, uh, he never got any credit for that mixer or for the design, never saw like any royalties. And it went on to sell hundreds of thousands, you know, and really changed the, that company's future um, and changed that company overall, just like the Rain 54, um, whether a lot of people would, would say it, I would say that changed that company's future. Um, you know, and a lot of, they, they didn't, they didn't, you know, the guys who did the frame 54 said there were some arguments when they were designing about, about credit and payment and should we get paid for this? And, you know, ultimately they, they decided no, and they'd rather just put it out. So how like these people get, um, 
get compensated, it could be with a free mixer <laughs> or a few free mixers or support touring. Uh, for the DJs who had more of a brand name, they would be brought on as, you know, sort of brand ambassadors for, for the companies like, uh, you know, Shortcut was and Qbert were, you know, they were all kind of brought on in the face of, of, of Vestex. And so, um, but, you know, I tell in the book, you know, Vestex never paid them for that. It was sort of mutual marketing. So Vestex promoted the DJs and the DJs promoted the product. And that sort of authenticity of the DJs, you know, was put placed on the product. But then you see them in ads and you see them on the product. And then it also authenticates the DJs. Most of the DJs I talked to who did like signature mixers or signature products, never, you know, never royalties. It was always free products, free support. I think DJ Craze, who did a Stanton uh, signature mixer, he was like a three-time world champion. He said he got a little bit of bread. Uh, from having his name on a mixer, um, you know, but I mean, you know, compensation is is definitely one of the main issues. And I think what most people wanted for compensation was credit, you know, like something in the manual or something, you know. And so that's ultimately for me, the whole vision behind this book in a lot of ways became like, how can I give some people credit? Now, granted, these are their stories, right? And everybody, it's really hard to say like, yeah, Shortcuts napkin on a drawing is is that mixer, right? Because I actually have the drawing that Vestex came up of that mixer, and it's very, very different. But Vestex gave a lot of credit or gave credit for that mixer to its president, uh, uh, Toshi Nakama at the time. And um, they gave him credit for it and not Shortcut. But Shortcut also, like other DJs, like gave – a little idea here. Maybe you should move this here. Maybe you should do that there. And so, how do you how do you credit that network of of creativity when people are like, you know, this that? And so, ultimately, I found that um, with these products, like who's given credit is usually whoever branded the mixer. So, uh, an interesting example in the book, I write a little bit about this mixer called the Vestex O Seven that was designed by this uh, UK DJ, DJ Go. And he, he you know, claims to have designed it. And then like who the culture recognizes as the designer of it is, uh, you know, DJ Q-Bird and Mixmaster Mike because they were the faces in the advertising and marketing of the mixer. But here's this guy that nobody, you know, he's not a famous, super famous DJ, but he had a relationship with the company and he drew – a design that became a very popular product, you know, and, but who's credited as the inventor or the innovator or the designer is the, the face that's uh, attached to it, which wasn't, you know, wasn't the, the not popular dude. So at the end of the day though, you know, I think really it's, it, people are just trying to get some sort of credit cause it's about, it's about their legacy, you know, it's about their history, um, you know, and what they've contributed. I mean, every hip hop DJ, you know, I've talked to and know like that are out there. They want to make contributions. They want to be known for doing something dope and new and, and contributing in some way. And for some people, that's being an ill scratcher or, or or manipulator or winning battles or whatever. And for others, you know, it's like 
uh, have having dope design ideas, you know, like, and like, how am I going to change the culture? It's through my design. So, um, you know, I wrote a lot about this DJ named DJ focus who invented, you know, literally, you know, came up with a contactless crossfader, um, and, uh, changed the industry, changed the culture. Um, you know, and his whole drive was like, I'm not going to make a contribution to this culture for scratching, but I'm innovative techno and I'm talking technologically savvy and I have ideas and, you know, and I have the drive to do them. And he, and he, and he, and he did it and he, he came out with some, one of the, you know, technologies that really changed the industry and, and the culture. Um, and you know, his, that was his contribution and he often has gone uncredited, uh, for that, um, in a lot of ways and forgotten about, I mean, there's quite a few, books and articles that I've seen that have been written about, you know, what we're talking about and what I researched that don't even mention his name when they're talking about like the crossfader or they're talking about like advancements in DJ technology. And I'm like, holy shit. Like I know about this dude, like I've known about this dude and like, I know what he did, you know? And so I, I hounded focus for years on MySpace. <laughs> First on MySpace and then eventually on Facebook. And after about five years of talking to him, I got him to do an, uh, do some interviews with me um, for this book. And, you know, he kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And it was just that was actually like one of the greatest moments in the whole book was being able to tell his story, give him credit, um, put some shine on him because no one had like given him any sort of light. And I thought he, he, his story is just super important um, because it changed the industry and the culture and uh, no one was talking about it. Um, but some heads knew and uh, he just wanted props, you know, he wanted to make his contribution in, in a different sort of way. Well, this has been just fantastic. I have learned so much. This has been great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books and Music podcast. Today I've been talking with Andre Sirwa, author of Hip Hop DJs and the Evolution of Technology, Cultural Exchange, Innovation, and Democratization. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening.